Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Steve Tucker. Steve sits on a number of boards, including that of Coda Capital as chairman. We speak to Steve about his experience in the wealth management industry and his view on advice. We cover topics such as what to look for in an advisor and an advice firm, what he sees as the big opportunities for clients and investors at the moment. And we also talk about the very topical issue of GameStop and what's going on in markets recently. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Please remember to keep your feedback coming in. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. Steve Tucker, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Steve, well, it's it's great to have you on, someone who's been quite influential in my career and my journey through wealth management. Perhaps for our listeners, you could kick off by giving us a bit of who you are and what your background is, please. Yeah, sure. I've been around for a long time now, David. Uh, started my career as uh, a, a part of the MLC team in Western Australia in 1988 um, after completing an econ- economics degree. Uh, and kind of got along with that company pretty well and stayed there for over 25 years, um, ending up being the CEO there for about 10 years. So uh, financial services guy, um, MLC for most of that time, um, having worked in various geographies in Asia and the UK and, uh, and Australia, of course, in lots of different jobs. Um, and post that, um, doing more uh, director work as well as being one of the founding partners of CODA. And, and you undersell yourself there a little bit, um, I think, a, a bit modest, and you don't need to be, I think, helpful for our, our listeners. You, you were the CEO of MLC and also head of all of the, the wealth management operations, if I'm right. Sort of just give the listeners a bit of an idea of the scale of that business. Yeah, so I, I um, well, maybe a bit more back. I, I started in a business development role and, and moved around from Perth into Sydney and then had national sales roles and, and ran the investments businesses. And uh, when the National Australia Bank acquired MLC in 2000 from Lend-Lease, uh, I was in that executive group and sort of found my way through to the CEO role in 2004, actually, which was a bit of a surprise. I was a young, only a young 38-year-old bloke and thought that was a bit of a risk for them to take, but anyway, they took it. Um, that business uh, was about 6,000 people, uh, over 100 billion uh, of assets under management at the time. Um, we had uh, a private bank. Uh, we later acquired businesses like Aviva and JB Weir, and it became quite a quite a large part of the, the bank's operations. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun, um, it was a great great thrill and, and it's certainly an honour to be able to run a company of, of that size and, and certainly a company that's that old as well, MLC being over 125 years old. And today you're serving on a couple of boards, you're the chairman of CODA obviously, um, uh, what, what else are you doing with your time? So chairman of CODA, I'm chairman of a, a company called Urbis, which is a um, town planning and property research and advisory company. Um, partnership business and similar kind of structure to CODA. Uh, I'm also a director of a company called FNZ, which is a global financial services technology platform, um, which is a fairly new role. And I'm um, also a founding director of a thing called the Banking and Finance Oath, which is an initiative that we created to get people that work in the financial services industry to think about uh, their role in terms of their behaviour and the way they deal with uh, some of the challenging issues of the day um, in an ethical way. Yeah, you've always had a bit of a bent for what's right in the industry, and I suppose many people would think of you as leading the charge at uh, MLC away from commission models and similar. 
Have you always had that uh, sort of bent within you or, or just doing what's right? Oh, no, I've always had that bent. I, it was funny. It's a, probably the history of it goes back to my you know, young days as a graduate where I, I was hoping to become a stockbroker um, in 1987 when I graduated. And, of course, the 87 crash came and the, the best job I could find was uh, working for an insurance company called MLC. And at those in those days, people were um, pretty scathing about insurance companies and my mates were working in law firms or accounting firms and I, I sort of thought, well, why is it so and, and should it be so? When I, when I realised how good the, the work that a company like that does, the value it creates for communities, the support it gives to people in all sorts of different ways, I became very proud of the company. Um, and that translated into wanting to be proud of an industry and a profession that I believe strongly in, the profession of advice. And so taking positions to help the structural shift that I knew needed to take place was probably part of what helped me to become successful because I so, so strongly believed that we could do better, not just as a company, but, but as an industry and a profession. And that sort of guided me through some pretty challenging times. Well, let's just pivot a little bit and, and congratulations on Coda Capital. Um, you know, as one of the founders, as you mentioned, the, the company that you're one of the founders of is now an 85 employee uh, advice firm um, managing about $8 billion on behalf of clients. I think it's actually probably the largest uh, wealth advice firm in Australia that's independent or can call itself independent under the Corps Act. So congratulations on, congratulations on that. What, what were the founding philosophies or what led you to, to step out and start that business? Well, I'd been working inside an institutional version of financial services all my career and I'd been trying inside that context to uh, help the, the system move to a more professional basis. And one of the things that I discovered quite early on was that there was this structural conflict that was built into those businesses. And we're seeing the fallout of that today to a certain extent with the changes to AMP and various other companies that have not managed that structural conflict very well. And when the chance to step aside from the, the big institutional role with a blank sheet of paper, um, when Paul Heath and I sat down and he had a view that we could build a private wealth firm, firm I thought that it would be very exciting to try and, with a, with a clean sort of sheet of paper, design what the private wealth firm of the future should look like. Uh, and there were some key guiding principles that, that had been guiding us to uh, this point in our careers that we hadn't been really able to implement inside the institution. The first and obvious uh, one is independence. There's always been this challenge for advisors and as professionals working inside institutions where the question is often asked, who are you working for, the institution or, or me? Um, in a new firm that doesn't have any of that legacy and the challenges of that legacy, we could create a, a truly independent firm, which is really hard to do from when you're already in a business, but if you design it from the start, you can do it quite quickly. So we love that concept. The concept of partnership and the idea that there's an alignment of interest when people are in business together was a concept that I was really, really um, drawn to um, having been a part of the Lend-Lease group. And Lend-Lease had this philosophy through Dick Dusseldorp and Stuart Hornery that every employee in the, in the organisation should own shares in the company and, sh and should um, uh, participate in the profits of that company. And I just think that that idea that a big company like Lendlease could create an ownership um, mentality and alignment is such a powerful concept that we wanted to see if we could design that indicator, which we've done as well. The concept of high quality professional people, not just growing for growth's sake and building a huge company 
which is by, by definition going to have um, you know, all sorts of different types of people. We designed the firm to be fairly small, fairly boutique, um, but populated with the highest quality people we could, we could come across. And then the last idea, if you like, of just building this business around a really strong ethical view that our job, start, middle, finish, and in the future, is about dealing with the clients and the client's interests first. And if you can package that up into a firm, which we've hopefully done in a firm called Cater Capital, I think you've got the ingredients for a really successful business. Where do you see the importance of advice for high net worth individuals and their families? Well, I think advice is critical for, for everybody. Um, certainly high net worth and their families who are already doing quite well. But if we just go back a step, I mean, the reality is that, that I concluded 20 years ago that the, probably the single most important thing we could do as a financial services institution was get as many people in front of a competent advisor as we could. And you might say, well, doesn't, everybody doesn't need advice. Well, the reality is, is that even though we work on financial literacy and we spend a lot of time trying to help people to understand concepts around finance, a lot of people don't. And, and the idea that they can get some simple, effective advice, you know, pay off your credit card or pay off your mortgage versus go and invest in um, you know, Elon Musk's next, next venture is probably good advice, uh, even though, um, of course, if you had invested in Elon Musk, you would have made a, made a lot of money. So, so that concept of advice changes from um, time to time as people go through different life events. When you first get your job and you go into superannuation, you know, the employer is paying it away, you're worrying about other things and you probably don't need as much. But as people get older and more wealthier, um, they obviously do start to turn their mind to what advice can do. And advice can make you money, it can structure you properly, it can make sure that in the event of something going wrong that you've got enough there for the future for your family. But what it all really adds up to at the end of the day is good advice, good competent ongoing advice should give you peace of mind. And peace of mind in these days, as you will know, is a very valuable and difficult thing to find. So if we can find a way of giving financial peace of mind, at least in that part of people's lives, then their future, you know, they can worry about other stuff and they always will, but, but that part of their life we can take care of and it's an important thing for us to be able to do. And what were the biggest or are the biggest obstacles in the market currently to that being delivered efficiently? So across the system, um, you know, we have this challenge of the breakdown of the traditional model and essentially for the last 30 or 40 years, the big institutions have been the biggest providers of advice in Australia. And those institutions have subsidised the advice that's been given to large numbers of, of Australians because they end up in some sort of product or service that that institution provides. Now, it's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But the reality is that over time, things have gone wrong in various places. And when there's that connection between the advisor and the institution, when something goes wrong, people question Who's, who's actually benefiting from this, this approach. And so we're seeing that breakdown before our very eyes. And if you said to me that you would see the likes of the AMP, one of the greatest brands that I grew up with and that you grew up with, um, you know, selling off its insurance company and going through some pretty serious corporate wobbles at the moment, you know, it was, it was hard to predict. But the reality is that those structures needed to shift, mainly because advice is becoming a profession or it already is a profession. Advisors are qualified there highly regulated, they're working under licences, their obligations are very serious. So we're seeing that breakdown of this institutional business model into what we call the great fragmentation, where advisors are going out and finding their new homes, whether it's with a group like Coda Capital, independent group, finding their own licences or joining groups that aren't associated with 
an institutional product business. And I think that's the future. And I think what that does when it finishes is it allows much larger numbers of Australians to get back to getting access to good quality advice. We've had a lot of people investing in technology to try and develop advice models that don't require such a personal interface and touch. It's you know, the robo-advice system. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been, to be honest, that's been a real challenge and it, strugg it struggles because of a few things. One, if you want to get to that peace of mind uh, position in your financial life, the relationship with your advisor is really important, that trust, that empathy, that understanding. But more importantly as, as well, the, the regulations haven't caught up with that. There, there is real challenges to using a technology solution that the young kids want to use to get the advice that's done in a, in a compliant way. And then finally, the red tape that's been put into our industry uh, to protect consumers from various things going wrong has gone too far. And we end up with the cost of providing advice to the average consumer being really high. Um, but for high net worth clients, um, you know, that can afford good quality, uh, ongoing, sophisticated advice, um, well, I mean, that's what we do. It's, it's the, the way we want to serve our clients and, and it's just demonstrably valuable um, over time. I suspect many of the listeners to, to the podcast have experienced their advisors moving from organisation to organisation over the last 10 years. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, it's certainly been on for young and old in terms of the, this breakdown of, of people being part of institutions and moving out into their own businesses. And, and that, look, the, the advisors are really kind of caught up in that to a certain extent. Um, but if, if you've got a good relationship with your advisor, you trust them and they're providing you with good quality work, then you know, we, we find the vast majority of clients that, that have that relationship follow their, follow their advisor into their, into their new construct. Now, it's, it's worth checking out where they're going and making sure they've got the back, back up. You know, there's a lot of technology and operations and things that go behind running a business like Coda. Um, you know, the idea of a, a couple of um, folks going down and setting up their own business and putting their shingle on the, on the door is no longer really going to work. So um, advisors are moving around and there'll, be, and there'll be a lot more moving as well as they move from the institutional context to find their way into the new setup. And so if you think about um, the accounting system, you know, the, the suburban accounting firm, um, you know, even going right back to sort of an H&R block that does simple tax work, the sort of mid-tier suburban accounting firm. And if you've got sophisticated, challenging affairs and you've got you know, real, real high quality you know, problems to deal with, then you'll go to the big end of town. And we'll end up with that type of construct for advice in this country. Steve, what what would your advice be to listeners who are looking at starting a new uh, advice relationship? What, what are the big things that they should be looking for to tick off and what are the, the big things they should be going, oh, you know, that, that might need a little bit more understanding before I'm comfortable with that? Yeah, the, the most important thing is to get to a, a position where you uh, have a, a feeling when you're dealing with an advisor that they're looking after your interests. And the way to define that is make sure they're independent. Um, and that's not so, so much because if they're not independent, they're going to do the wrong thing. Um, but the reality is that if you take Coda as an example, we're a completely independent firm. Something might go wrong and some investments don't work and we do occasionally, um, not, not very often, but occasionally we do to get a few things wrong. But there's no motivation for us to have made that recommendation or put the client towards that investment other than we're trying to do the best for them. And when there's um, other you know, corporate connections and things like that, it becomes a bit of a, a, a blurrier picture. So independence is important. The quality of the individual, how long have they been around, how you know, 
how, how often and continuously are they improving their skills? Skills are a hard thing to assess when you're talking to an advisor if you're not you know, in and around money all the time. But you, you probably think about in your life when you talk to people, you, you know when they're pretty competent and you can ask a few questions to, to get that right. And then finally, you know, are, are they going to be around for a while? Because these relationships go on for, for a long time. And if the advisor's not going to be around for a while, am I happy with the firm that they're with? And am I happy to continue my relationship with the firm that they're part of? Because, you know, uh, we hope to be providing advice not just to you know, mum and dad today, but hopefully to future generations of, of that family over the next 100 years. Uh, and that's the sort of you know, work that we're doing to build that intergenerational process. So you know, finding an advisor, lots of people ask me, where should I, where should I go for advice? One of the great um, uh, people in our industry uh, said to me once, the, the, the real test is, is it somebody who you'd be happy to send your mother to? Uh, and finding people like that in our industry is what we are trying to do with CADA. Um, but it's a difficult thing to, to be able to answer. Very personal thing. And Steve, what, what do you think the big uh, trends that we're going to see come up over the next few years in the advice industry that are likely to affect uh, investors and clients? Um, what's your thoughts there? Well, we're seeing, we're seeing a, a number of trends. We've talked about the, the big um, uh, trend of advisors moving away from institutions and, and into the smaller uh, businesses or boutique setups. I think we're seeing uh, a big change in the way people invest, the, the concept of set and forget, the default idea that I'll just you know, leave my money in a low cost fund uh, is changing because people realise that cost isn't everything, it's actually access to global investments that are outstanding, advice that goes alongside that that creates um, the best outcome. So we're seeing that trend. Um, and the, just on that, the focus on fees um, and the way the government focuses on fees and as being a, a, a proxy for value is wrong. Uh, the idea that um, I've had conversations with chief investment officers of huge billions of dollars of, of super fund money saying to me that they'd rather buy something that's cheap that keeps their fees down, even if they know that they would invest in other things that would give them a better return because the focus in their context is on fees rather than outcomes. This is crazy stuff. So that's a, that's a big trend, which I think ultimately, it, you know, water finds its own level. It won't, it won't sustain itself because people that want to get you know, better returns or better access to investments will, will, will see through that and decide, yeah, it is worth paying a little bit more for, for a little bit better access and a little bit more uh, global coverage. Um, and the last trend is the use of technology. Uh, you know, you're a big advocate of this, and I, you know, I know you have a lot of uh, thoughts behind uh, how you run uh, your your part of the business. But look, technology is solving a lot of solutions for people. Whether it's you know access to looking at your stuff if you just want to keep an eye on things, versus you know our ability to invest in things all over the world now, which is so much easier than it was even just five years ago. If we find a particular investment style or fund manager, and you know whether they're in New York or you know anywhere really, we can we can use technology to access them. We can hear their story, we can keep an eye on them, we can run the money. So that's really opened up the world to us. Talk to me about those changes. Obviously, having run MLC and all of NAB's wealth group, you had a big, powerful machine and pretty much every investment uh, opportunity or manager or the best and brightest from around the world was always available to you. Tell me about dealing with the transition and starting a wealth advice firm in Coda with you know, really zero dollars under advice where those doors may not have been open. How have you been able to open them? What has been that process or experience? 
Uh, look, it's a great question. Uh, um, uh, we more than more than once had a conversation about, you know, will we be able to get the access that we that we want and need for our clients? But a few things happen simultaneously, or maybe I'll just take you through them. The first one is this big structural industry trend of if I'm a producer of product or if I create investment opportunities, I'll have a big in-house brokerage or um, business development group that I can use to push that product out to the market to get access to the funding I need. That shifted really quickly. All the investment, most of the investment banks around the world actually realised that they didn't need to have that in-house, what they used to call distribution business, because if it was any good, we would want to get it for our clients. So at, at almost the same time as we started Coda, this trend really, really took place. So what we found was where we thought we might have trouble getting into some of these deals, almost the day we opened the door, perhaps because of the reputation of people like Paul and others who obviously have been around for a long time, we were finding it quite easy to get people to come to us and say, look, we've got a really interesting offer here, or this is our new fund there, and you know, would you have a look at it for us? And it grew, it grew from there. So that was the, the first trend. The second, the second thing is we, we, when, what we found was, because we actually go out and look for it, there's so much stuff around that most people haven't got a chance to get to see. And it wasn't a matter of, you know, we've got a choice of two, should we pick this one or that one? It was a choice of, you know, you know many, many more than that in different areas and different places. So, you know, getting out and finding the, the, the opportunities um, by, you know, getting on the plane and looking around, the change in the way the distribution system worked. And then, of course, we, not of course, but luckily, we, we started to get some really good success quite early and people realised that, you know, if they had good, interesting, diverse investment opportunities, they should come and talk to Coda. And so very quickly it took care of itself. So Steve, you spent all this time uh, running an inside institutional wealth advice and wealth management, and for the past five years, you've stepped out into this independent boutique um, landscape. What have you learned? The main, main um, thing I've learned is, is what clients really need as opposed to what they're looking for. Um, you know, if you think about the average investor out there, it's been said that they might spend more time researching their next barbecue purchase than the next stock they might buy. And, and I sort of thought about that and I thought, you know, that's, that's possibly right. And certainly in um, some of my circles, I have those conversations around the barbecue and they tell me about the barbecue they bought and then the stock that they might, might buy. And so w the real question is, what, what do we think clients are looking for? And in private client land where people have done really well, they've been successful, they've created a business or their family's been uh, doing really well in various investments, what are they really looking for? And I talked about this concept of peace of mind, but with that comes the relationship, the trust and all those sort of things. But mainly people aren't looking for 50% returns for their investments. People are looking for an opportunity to see things that they might not have seen before, but they really like the fact that we build portfolios that are so carefully constructed with their interests in mind and with their objectives in mind that we, we can basically build everybody their own tailored portfolio, looking into all the opportunities we find around the world. So that when the markets go gangbusters, occasionally we get a phone call from one or two of them saying, we're not doing quite as well as the market. But when the markets really crap out, which happens more often than we like, we get the phone call saying, wow, I feel great that I'm in a really diverse and, uh, and really um, risk-managed portfolio and I'm not losing as much money as the markets. So that, that sort of idea that 
Um, everybody who comes to a private client advisor is looking for the next big stock, stock tip versus what they're really looking for is, I just want to get wealthy slowly and carefully and I want to see good stuff along the way so that we can put those portfolios together designed around those objectives. And I think clients really feel you know, wonderfully looked after if we, when we do that for them. And that's probably slightly different to um, uh, perhaps if you're working in a bank, like a private bank, where what, what the private banks tend to do, um, no disrespect for people from private banks, they're all good people, but they tend to find the next idea and push that down to a client to have a look at versus what, what I think they're really looking for and what they tell us they're looking for, which is, I don't want to see the next best idea. I want to see the portfolio of ideas structured and set up for what I need. So Steve, do you see any opportunities for uh, investors in the current markets? Yeah, it's an interesting market, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's had a fairly good recovery in terms of what people perceive as the general market. But the challenge is, of course, we're in a very low interest rate environment and a, and a very low yield environment. So yeah, the opportunities for private clients who have access to spare capital, um, who deal with a firm um, that knows and understands private markets and sees opportunities that come along. And usually these are not you know, open-ended things. There's just a, a tranche of um, um, capital that can be invested into certain strategies that, that these types of clients can get access to. And there is, there is absolutely um, some dislocation in some of these markets where private clients get access, where perhaps normal sort of um, uh, you know, average investors don't, don't get to see. Whether that's in private debt, which we're seeing a lot of opportunities in the moment, um, we, you know, there's a lot of interest in health and healthcare at the moment. Um, opportunistic property, even though we're seeing property in this country um, rebound and recover quite well, we're certainly seeing um, around the world because of COVID um, places like the UK and other areas where there's some real dislocation in terms of risk versus return opportunity for, for those sorts of asset classes. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the best, um, best opportunities um, are always the next one. Um, but right in front of us right now, it's, it's those private debt markets, property markets, and some of the specialist areas like health and healthcare and biotech, where we're seeing a lot of interest at the moment. And of course, the, the, the surge or the, the mega trend around you know, socially responsible investing in, uh, in, in those sorts of areas is, is a very, very interesting trend, something that CODA watches really closely. In fact, we're very proud to be very heavily involved in philanthropy and social impact investing, but also socially responsible investing, which is um, actually turning out to be a really interesting area for both access to returns as well as um, you know, a satisfying thing to be able to be part of. So yeah, there's some good opportunities coming up. Um, I feel really op optimistic actually um, long, longer term out. It's a bit hard to see you know, the next sort of six to 12 months with what we've been going through. But um, yeah, certainly uh, I, I would think that the best opportunities are gonna be right in front of us in the next you know, 12 months. Now, Steve, before I let you go, it would be remiss of me not to ask, I think, um, <laughs> given what's going on in markets right now with GameStop, where we've seen um, what people would class as retail investors and people using blog, um, blogging Reddit sort of sites to band together and form positions against um, some pretty heavyweight um, global hedge funds who have identified a, a company like GameStop where they were shorting it, looking for that stock to go down um, or, or reduce in price to make a profit, um, where some people or retail investors have sort of banded together and over websites, um, you know, 
coordinated themselves and, and bought into those companies and, and led to massive losses from some of those hedge funds. And I think one of them crystallized the loss of uh, $5 billion, um, which is not an inconsequential amount. Um, what's your view of what's going on and does it signal any sort of permanent changes of what's going on in the advice or financial distribution markets? Yeah, look, it was, it was a fascinating thing to watch and I think it does signal at least a change in thinking, if not a change in the way markets you know, might operate in the future. This happened so quickly. It's really a sort of six-month story, but to, to cut it right back, I mean, essentially we're seeing the power of social media and the community, if you like, sort of fighting back against the evil hedge fund, uh, and they won. Uh, at least in this in this round, although don't underestimate the hedge fund's ability to work out what they're going to do next and and get in front of it. Um, but yeah, like I think it does it does change the way perhaps uh, we think, or at least some of the uh, the people that are shorting stocks should think. I won't, you know the short squeeze idea. I mean, the reality is is that these people expected the company to go down. Those guys banded together, which is very unusual and hasn't really happened on this scale before, and forced the stock up, and they got caught out. Um, and the regulators got caught out because how do they deal with this? It's a bit like, uh, if you like, video piracy. Um, you're actually not allowed to manipulate markets, but if everybody's downloading the, the video, then who are you going to prosecute? You know, maybe you'll pick one or two, try and make an example of them. Um, but so everything, I think everybody's scurrying around trying to think of how they're going to respond to this. Certainly the hedge funds, a couple of hedge funds got nailed. A lot of the, uh, the community that was supposedly sort of unorganised bunch of kids made a stack of money. I don't think they were that unorganised, but I don't think they were a bunch of kids. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing another example of how smart people using new technology and the ability to communicate in large numbers are creating a different um, way of uh, using market inefficiencies, if you like, to, to make money. And I think it's a really interesting trend and we'll see what, what the next chapter might be. Well, terrific. Steve, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.